number 26. Is this your true and correct verdict? Yes. Juror number 40. Is this your true and correct verdict? Yes. Juror number 48. Is this your true and correct verdict? Yes. And juror number 55. Is this your true and correct verdict? Yes, it is. Members of the jury, um, when you first came into the courtroom, I told you that jurors are the heroes of our judicial system. Well, the 12 of you are our heroes in this case. You might remember that there was a question on the questionnaire that asked whether you wanted to be on this jury. You were to check yes, no, or maybe. A number of you checked no or not sure, and a few of you checked all three. But when I asked each of you if you would be willing to serve if the party selected you as a juror, you all said yes. You said yes even though we are in a pandemic with Omicron spreading in our community. You said yes, even though you had concerns about serving, given the nature of the case. You said yes, even though you knew you would be sequestered during deliberations and away from your loved ones. And you said yes, even though there was a chance that this case could have lasted past Christmas. You were willing to sacrifice much because you believed in our justice system. And then you went into deliberations, and each of you brought with you... Uh, all right, Keenan, we can bail out of that. Uh, that was the judge, uh, again, uh, speaking to the jury uh, after they rendered their verdict. I want to go to my panel, Matt Manning. Uh, he is uh, a trial attorney. Uh, he joins us uh, right now, civil rights attorney. Uh, also joining us, Bernarda Villalona. She's going to be with us at a moment, senior trial counsel for the George Jackson Law Firm. Uh, also joining us right now is uh, Angie Porter, research fellow uh, and adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, she also was a prosecutor there uh, in Minnesota. Uh, glad to have uh, all of you on the show. Uh, first and foremost, uh, let, let's start. Let's start here. Um, initially, initially, first of all, uh, all three of you. Were any of you surprised with this verdict? Did you believe that uh, this jury, uh, after initially sending out their comment to the judge, that they were going to, that one, at least one person was going to let her allow her to walk? So I'll tell you this. I was surprised by the verdict in the sense of, so let's just be clear. So, Roland, what happened is, is that Monday, of course, they closed. Jury instructions was given. They were allowed to deliberate for a couple hours. Then they returned on Tuesday. Tuesday morning, they actually, we know now that they had a verdict as to manslaughter in the second degree as to culpable negligence, because that verdict was reached at 1030 in the morning on Tuesday. And then they sent out a hung note. I would call it a hung note in terms of they wouldn't be able to reach a decision, but they never made it clear or gave us any leeway in terms of learning what their split was. But we now know what they were stuck on was the reckless homicide, the manslaughter in the first degree. And that's what they were stuck on. And eventually, they were able to go over the hurdle and find her guilty of manslaughter in the first degree. But despite, for us, it doesn't matter how much evidence exists. Anytime there's an officer that is on trial, we always have that pause and those 
testifies when we hear there's a verdict because there is no guarantee that there will be a conviction. Matt? I am kind of surprised, if I'm honest, Roland. I'm surprised because I thought, um, as she just spoke to, I thought the intent would really be the difficult thing for them to get over. And I thought because of how police officers are frankly given so much benefit of the doubt, um, I thought that the, the jury might come back on the side of it was just a mistake and therefore the intentionality that's required of the statute was not met. Um, it sounds like Mr. Frank and his team and Mr. Ellison really and his team did a bang up job of really proving their indictment. So I'm not surprised by the caliber of their work, but when you get down to thorny issues as it relates to a police officer and intent, it's always a difficult issue. And I was surprised that it came down uh, as forcefully as it did on both counts. Angie? Thanks, Roland. I, um, you know, juries are unpredictable. So I entertained every possibility. I thought it would be either a hung jury or a guilty verdict based on my close review of the trial um, and sort of reading the tea leaves of their jury questions. I know they, they seem like they might have been close to deadlocked, but they also asked a question about whether they could hold the gun which showed me they were really carefully deliberating about the distinctions between the Glock and the Taser. So I was sort of leaning that they might find guilty on at least one of the charges and um, sort of predicted that after we knew it wasn't a hung jury. One of the things that we have to look at here is that, again, we got to give some credit uh, to uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison. Uh, initially, uh, the, uh, the prosecutors were only going to pursue manslaughter two when the state stepped in they added manslaughter one you were prosecutor uh, in that state angie uh that, i mean i, I think it's, we, we cannot overestimate uh, uh underestimate i'm sorry uh, the role that uh keith ellison's team played because these prosecutors were also involved in the conviction of Derek show absolutely absolutely elections matter attention to who the state attorney is really matters and I think initially we were worried about whether they would charge this case and how they would charge it we had a, a Pete Orplett I believe was the was the attorney on the case and they pushed to get Keith Ellison on and he really pulled it together exactly how he pulled together that team in the Chauvin trial so it is so helpful that he is there we might not have seen this result without his presence um, the, the, the thing that I think really stands out here, Joey, is that uh, you look at this conviction, Derek Chauvin, you look at Jason Van Dyke uh, in jail as well. The protest uh, that we have seen over the last decade is having a mark. It, it is changing the public's perception of how we hold police accountable for their actions. Joey, did you hear me? Uh, Joey, did you hear me? Matt, did you hear me? I did, I did, yes. Uh, I, I do think you're right. I, go right ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think you're right. I think the, the uh, political pressure and the social pressure that's on is really requiring prosecutors to not only be nuanced, but to do their absolute best to make sure that they put forth the true case um, and not sweeping things under the rug. So I do think that that pressure is having a, a demonstrable effect on what we're seeing. But I also think that it's still extremely difficult to prosecute a police officer who commits a crime in the line of duty. I've prosecuted hundreds of cases, and this would be among the most difficult I prosecuted. So I don't want to undersell really the acumen 
with Mr. Ellison and his team because I really think they've done a bang-up job in both cases, which are difficult by the very nature that they have occurred while a police officer was on. Bernardo, what, what should um, other DAs be learning from this trial and from the Chauvin trial with the work of the uh, Minnesota Attorney General's office? So, Roland, aside from learning, is that what these other prosecutors have to have is the courage. Have the courage to actually bring charges if you see that charges are fit in a certain case. Because that's the first step right there, the problem that we have. In terms of prosecutors, we know that prosecutors have an enormous amount of power. If it's the prosecutor can determine whether someone's arrested, the prosecutor can determine what charges, if any, someone should face. So in terms of the prosecutor who represents the people of any given county, they're supposed to be the word in the face for the people, is that if there's an issue, there's a crime that is committed, you put it before the jury or a grand jury for them to make a decision as to what actually happened, as opposed to taking it away and not giving the people the opportunity to make a decision. And that's why it's even more important that these cases are televised, is because for there to be any kind of confidence in our criminal justice system, there has to be transparency. And that's what we were able to see by having this trial televised and for us to see how the criminal justice system actually works. But in terms of prosecutors, you need to have courage and you need to be able to step step forward when there's an issue that arises so there can be trust in the community. Uh, uh, one of the things that uh, we saw, we saw a whole lot of histrionics, no tears, coming off, <laughs> off of that, uh, that stand uh, from Kim Potter. Uh, she came to court today with her Mr. Rogers sweater on again. Uh, and, uh, you know, anybody surprised that, uh, that this was her reaction, which was pretty much no reaction at all was she heard guilty? Roland, we saw her true demeanor today when that verdict came out. When that verdict came out, there were no tears. There was no crying. If anything, you saw her face turn a little bit red. But also what I noticed different from when she testified. Remember when she testified, she actually had a chain with a crucifix on. She didn't have that on today. <laughs> Aside from, just goes to show you the performance that she put on for that jury when she actually testified. But we also saw a Jekyll Hyde effect because during direct, she was a completely different person than she was doing cross-examination. And I think that was so telling for that jury because her true emotions that you saw was on that video and body-worn camera where she was actually distraught. But her terms of being distraught, I think it's because it actually happened, not because she actually took someone's life. She's like, oh my God, I'm going to jail. Angie, was, it was also um, very good to see the judge say no. She was not going to uh, depart from what normally happens. She was going to remand her into custody with no bail uh, and not allowing her to go home for Christmas. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really thought the judge, too, did a great job throughout this trial. And, you know, it's gracious to call me a Minnesota prosecutor. I prosecuted for a very short time for the city of Minneapolis, but the majority of my career was spent as a commercial attorney appearing before various judges in different courts. Uh, so I've seen a range, but uh, I thought that Judge Chu represented a really even keel, deliberate and careful judge. And I think that it's funny that female judges get the reputation, or female leaders in general get the reputation of being emotional, but she's the judge who has been the most cool as a cucumber of all these judges we've seen. If 
all these male judges we've seen in these high-profile cases for the black community. So I think that really raises the question about who these judges are and what they can bring from their identity and really sort of suggests that we should be more attentive to judicial appointments and judicial elections across the country. Matt, final comment. I think both of those sisters are exactly right. And again, I just echo my sentiments that I've prosecuted and defended hundreds of cases. I think it's very hard to prosecute a police officer who was in the line of his or her duty. And I think that uh, Attorney General Ellison and his team should really be commended because they did a stand-up job. All right. Uh, I want to thank all three of you for joining us to talk about uh, your reaction to the Kim Potter guilty verdicts. Uh, the family of Dante Wright spoke uh, outside of the courtroom after uh, today's court proceedings and the verdicts were read. Here's what they had to say. When you heard the word guilty, and, and what are you feeling now? Have you processed it? What's going through your head and heart right now? Oh, my gosh. Um, the moment that we heard guilty on the um, manslaughter one, emotions, every single emotion that you could imagine just running through your body at that moment. Um, I kind of let out a yelp because it was built up in the anticipation of what was to come while we were waiting for the last few days. And um, now we've been able to process it. Um, we want to thank the entire prosecution team. We want to thank community support, um, everybody who's been out there that has supported us in this this long fight for accountability. Um, I'd rather not answer that question. Well, the truth be told, what do I think? Uh, I want to thank her. I'm going to keep it short. <laughs> So let's bring in Reese Colbert, Black Women's Views, Greg Carr, Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University, Faraji Muhammad, radio uh, and TV host uh, as well. Um, it, um, you know, a lot of people were very surprised uh, when uh, they, they, they saw this verdict. Uh, and, and look, frankly, we're, we're surprised each time a police officer is found guilty because, frankly, it just simply doesn't happen a lot in this country, Reese. Uh, but the tide is turning. Absolutely. And as it turns out, being an incompetent dumbass isn't a very good defense. She almost would have been better off saying that she intended to shoot him and that she feared for her life. So I'm glad to see that she's being held accountable. I'm glad that hopefully this sends a message to the police officer that stupidity, incompetence, and making a quote-unquote mistake is not a good enough reason to execute a black person who the traffic stop started over, started over um, air pressure. That's what it started. I don't know how you escalate from air freshener to full-on murder, um, but I think that accountability was served. I think we're always careful to, talk, to call it justice. Um, I think that her team was incredibly arrogant, and uh, I was really appalled watching their response to the verdict saying what Kim Potter was amenable to. She's amenable to parole. She's remorseful and still calling it an accident and still diminishing the severity over it. So I definitely applaud the judge for keeping a cool head, as uh, Professor Porter uh, pointed out, and sticking with the facts of the case, sticking with the fact that there was a conviction, and not showing her favoritism. She belongs in jail. 
She does not deserve a Christmas with her family. Dante Wright's family does not have a Christmas with him. And so I think that accountability was served. And I think that the jury did the right thing, which is always a surprise when it comes to the police officers. But I think it shows that we don't just have an issue as simple as the laws and uh, and the prosecution. It, 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 it's all of how all these factors come into play. But in this case, it worked out the way that it was supposed to work. Um, the thing here for Aji is that, um, you know, she, you know, she made clear that she thought that it was a racial stop. Uh, the thing here is that at some point she could have actually said, this stop makes no sense. Look in this, but that didn't happen. And she was a senior. She was a senior officer on the, on, uh, on, on the scene. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, those are the type of judgment calls, brother Roland, that we, we, that we have always been talking about for officers to make, you know, those are the type of decisions that the officers should take into, uh, should take into account if they're going to have these, you know, in, in type of in, in interactions. And I'm with Reese on this. I mean, at this point, you know, when you look back at what she was trying to do on the, while she was on the stand from the crying to the way she was dressed and all of the whole not, it's insulting. It's absolutely insulting. Like you're trying to make yourself, uh, a separate person, a different person than what we saw on that video. And, you know, I was, I, I'm, I'm like my man, Matt, you know, at first I was like, man, I don't think, I don't know if this thing is going to happen, but to see this happen on two counts, um, to see her being guilty on all charges for me, I'm just excited. I'm, I'm happy. Um, it, I feel like this is definitely a victory for the Dante, for Dante Wright's family, but I know that it was still a long way to go. And big shout out to Keith Ellison, man, for, I mean, he, he had two home runs in one year on two major cases um, that affect our community. And I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, can we get some more of that type of or prosecutorial skill in other cities across this country? Because at this point, uh, if, if one prosecutor, prosecutor, prosecutor can do that, then we're stopping others from doing it. Well, this is, this is the difference uh, when, you, when you have folks who run for attorney general in district attorney, and that's why we always say, Greg, on the show, elections matter. Greg, I think you're on mute. Sorry about that, brother. You, uh, yes, sir. Yeah, they absolutely do. Uh, on the day when we saw the Biden administration announce uh, the nomination of T. Michelle Childs to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and uh, Nancy Abutu to the 11th Circuit, if confirmed, to be the first black woman uh, to serve on that circuit. Uh, we are reminded that uh, Judge Regina Chu, as we just heard President Porter today, uh, was appointed by Governor Jesse Ventura. We remember the controversial election of Jesse Ventura as governor of Minnesota, but he was, she was appointed in 2002, I think. She ran for and was elected in 2004, re-elected again in 2010, and re-elected in 2016. And, and as we heard, very even-tempered, ran that trial about as clinically as you could, and elections matter. And, and as we also heard, Keith Ellison, uh, there was a push to put him there, but he wouldn't have been there to push had it not been for elections. And let us not forget, finally, in the state of Minnesota, see, there's no country, meaning there are no national lessons to learn from this. Uh, Minnesota is not Texas. Minnesota is not Mississippi. Minnesota is not Tennessee or the District of Columbia. Minnesota is a perfect, it was, it was a perfect storm as close as you could get. You had a jury in a city and county, Hennepin County, of a million, almost a million three people uh, that's about 74% white and about 14% black. You had, a, you had a jury of six white men, three white women, uh, two Asian 
uh, women and one black woman and no black man anywhere, even though a black man's execution was at trial. So, you know, you, you heard Keith Ellison walk the razor's edge today where he comforted the family of Dante Wright. And you heard Dante Wright's mother say, yeah, I don't want to I don't even want to comment on that. But then he turned around and said that this uh, killer cop was part of a noble profession. Yeah, no. Let us never forget that the police in this country kill about 1,000 people a year. And so far in 2020, there have been 21 police total charged with murder or manslaughter, including uh, off-duty cops. And now that is up from 16 last year, but it still means that you got to have some heart to prosecute people. And if people don't think elections don't matter, put somebody in the seat who will hold these killers responsible, or at least put us in the arena so that we can begin to try to do that. But this is incremental work. The fight is far from over. Uh, indeed, indeed, indeed. All right, folks, got to go to a break. When we come back. We're going to talk uh, uh, Maryland politics, uh, 2022 elections taking place next year, not just uh, U.S. Senate races, congressional races, but gubernatorial races. One of the folks who's running uh, for governor of Maryland is uh, John King. And we'll talk with the former education secretary next, uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered, right here on the Black Star Network. Trump and pro-vaccine, that is a very, very low bar. 
Uh, one of the first things he did when he took office was he canceled a transportation project that would have connected poor neighborhoods in Baltimore with where the jobs are. He sent almost a billion dollars back to the Obama administration. And again, it was dog whistle politics. It was saying, oh, well, why are we going to spend money on those people? In, in, in terms of uh, in terms of priority, education uh, obviously is uh, area of interest for you, uh, and we know that that's been a major major concern for folks uh, who are in Baltimore. Uh, and so, uh, what will you do different if elected governor? Yeah, we we need to invest much more in our K twelve schools. Actually, the General Assembly just passed a major school funding reform package over Governor Hogan's veto. Uh, some of my Democratic opponents are, are reluctant about it, but I, I believe it's very important to follow through on that additional investment in raising teacher pay and making all of our high-poverty schools community schools with wraparound services to support families, investing in career and technical education so young people are prepared for good 21st century jobs. And I think we need to build on that reform. I've called for universal affordable child care, Berkey, we can afford to do that in Maryland. It's a question of political will. And we have to invest much more in our community colleges and our historically black colleges and universities in the state. Those are institutions that have been engines of social mobility for generations. My grandmother graduated from University of Maryland Eastern Shore in 1894. Changed the whole trajectory of our family. Those are the kinds of institutions we've got to prioritize going forward. Questions from my panel. Faraji, you're there. Uh, you're based there in Baltimore. Your question for John King. Uh, good, good evening, Mr. King. Um, I, my big question is, as a citizen of Baltimore and one who has, you know, keeps up with the, the politics of everything, um, what, is, what do you think your administration, well, what will be your administration's relationship to the city of Baltimore? Because as it currently stands, uh, you know, when it comes to Baltimore City and Annapolis, it can be a contentious relationship, whether you're talking about funding for education or, most importantly, crime and violence issues. So, so. You know, we see that from uh, Governor Larry Hogan. We've seen that from, from previous governors from the state. What will be your administration's tone and relationship to, to city leaders, especially when it comes to funding of education and other initiatives? Yeah, I'm so glad you framed the question that way. Look, I, I think the future of the state depends on the success of the city of Baltimore. And so the governor and Mayor Brandon Scott need to be partners. And I will be a partner to the city on economic development, on public safety, on investment in schools. Uh, and I think we need the state to be a partner in a neighborhood-based economic development strategy. As you know, for the last 20, 30 years, a lot of the economic development strategy in the city has focused on uh, building up fancy apartments at the waterfront yep. and hoping yep. that that would benefit the rest of the city. So you have right. middle class, working class, black folks actually subsidizing with their tax dollars, wealthy white folks living in uh, waterfront, beautiful apartments. That is not the right way to think about economic development in the city. We need to do much more around neighborhood-based economic development. That will create a, a healthier city. That's investing in small businesses. That's making sure every neighborhood has a supermarket. There's good transportation between neighborhoods so folks can get to where the jobs are. Thank you. Reese Colbert, your question for John King. Hi, Mr. King. Um, my question is actually about Prince George's County. Um, what is your, you know, lens towards Prince George's County and the economic development there? I've noticed there's a lot of new construction, as you pointed out, but the last thing PG County needs is another chicken shack. I mean, there's a Popeyes that popped up across the Bojangles. 
Um, there's a huge new development in the Capitol Heights area where the first things in there is a liquor store and a nail shop. So I'm just curious in terms of the um, economic plan. You know, Prince George's County is one of the most, most um, successful black, predominantly black counties in the country. And I think that uh, the accounting executive, Angela Alsabrooks, does an amazing job. But I think I'm curious to see as the governor what the state contribution or state plan would be for PG County. Yeah, you know, I think County Executive Alsobrook needs a partner in the governor who's focused on economic development, and part of that is improving retail. I hear from a lot of folks in Prince George's County how they have to drive to Montgomery County or Anne Arundel County to find the stores that they want. We can do something about that. The metro stops in Prince George's County, for example, are a great opportunity for mixed-use development, housing, commercial, attracting better retail to the city. Uh, we also have a lot of small business owners in Prince George's County, folks of color who are building businesses. I think we should have a state bank in Maryland, which would allow us to provide loans more easily to small businesses who often struggle to get the capital they need to grow. Uh, we also have a lot of businesses in Prince George's County that do business with the state. And the state has a terrible history around following the law, around uh, the participation of businesses owned by women and people of color in state contracts. And we need really to reform procurement in the state to make sure that uh, small businesses owned by folks of color have a legit shot at state contracts. Greg Carr. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Roland. And uh, thank you, Secretary King. In uh, looking at the field so far, I see at least two other brothers, uh, Rashara Baker and uh, Wes Moore, and, and a few Obama uh, cabinet folk and, and appointments like they have in the Obama reunion. Tom Perez wants another title that one. But I, I guess my question has to do with how you break out beyond the attempts that they will make to label you as the black candidate or a black candidate. I saw your remarks on critical race theory earlier this month where you stood up strongly in terms of the truth. And as an educator who's deeply concerned about curriculum, African-American history and curriculum, I, I, was, I was really happy to see that. But uh, how do you distinguish yourself from a field that looks pretty similar ideologically? And then if you get through the primary and win the primary in the general election, how can you grow beyond just the idea that you're a black candidate to reach beyond that and get above that ceiling that folks like Ben Jellison and those of others may have encountered uh, when we know that CRT and all those labels are going to be used as a tar brush to try to, you know, confine you to a, to a racial a racial uh, kind of characterization. Yeah, that's exactly the right question. Look, we've only had two elected African-American governors ever as a country. Uh, so we've got to make sure that we build a strong multiracial coalition. I think I'm the right candidate to do that. Education is certainly top of mind for voters in every part of the state. Uh, I've been the, the first candidate to do in-person campaign events in every county. I'm going to parts of the state that don't usually vote for Democrats because I want them to know I want to be their governor, too. I want to hear their challenges, the challenges faced by small farmers in southern Maryland, the challenges faced by small business owners in western Maryland near the West Virginia border. I want to I want to help them, too, and make sure that government's on their side. I also think we can't leave some of these dog whistle attacks unanswered. I mean, that's why I took on the critical race theory issue. You know, I live in Silver Spring, Maryland, about 25 miles from where my great-grandfather was enslaved in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Uh, we need to tell the truth about that. That happened. That's real. And, 
you know, folks want want to have that fight. Let's let's have it. Let's be clear that what is important is that our kids understand both the hard parts of our history and the progress that we made. All right, John King, we sure appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Uh, good luck uh, in the election. Thanks so much. Great to see you. All right, folks, got to go to a break. We come back. President Joe Biden finally speaks out on filibuster reforms uh, in an interview with ABC. We'll show you what he said, and we'll talk with uh, the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, Cliff Albright, about that. Could this be the thing that finally moves the voting bills that have been held up in the United States Senate? Well, we'll see. You're watching Roller Button Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. One is in a constant fight, constant battle over voting rights. Republicans have stood in the way, obstructing any chance they can. They could, including some Democrats, doing the exact same thing. And so, with Democrats and Republicans tied 50 50 in the United States Senate, it requires a breaking of the filibuster or even a carve out. And you had Democrats, uh, Christian Sinema, Joe Manchin, saying they don't support that carve out. Some other Democrats as well. Now, an increasing number say they do. Finally, the interview with David Muir of ABC, President Joe Biden weighs in. You know many of your supporters believe in order to protect democracy in this country, you've got to protect voters' rights. Yes. As we near the end of year one, nothing's been done. It's been blocked by the filibuster. Are you prepared to support fundamental changes in the Senate rules to get this done? Yes. What does that mean? That means whatever it takes. Change the Senate rules to accommodate major pieces of legislation without requiring 60 votes. So you support a carve-out of the filibuster for voting well, rights? The only thing standing between getting voting rights legislation passed and not getting passed is the filibuster. I support making the exception of voting rights for the filibuster. Well, is it enough? Is that going to move Democrats? on this issue. Cliff Albright, a co-founder of Black Voters Matter, he joins us right now. Cliff, uh, y'all have been uh, pushing the president for quite some time. Uh, you're finally glad to see, hear him say this? Yeah, hey, good evening, Roland, and, and happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you. Hey, um, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a step forward, right? It, it's, it's not quite the, you know, the buck stops here kind of, um, you know, bully pulpit type uh, language that, you know, we really want to see him use. For example, when he went to Congress uh, last month to, to push for the passage of that infrastructure bill, he didn't go there saying, I support this infrastructure bill. He, say, he went there saying, I want this infrastructure bill. I need y'all to get this done, and I need y'all to get it done now, right? Strong language on the filibuster would be something like that, right? It's good that he said specifically and explicitly that he supports the carve-out, 
but you know, I'm look, I'm looking for that that advocacy role, that bully pulpit role of President Biden saying, you know, not only do I support this, but I am calling on my colleagues, many of whom I served with in the Senate for years, I am calling on them to modify these rules immediately. In fact, I would have loved to see him say that he, he wanted them to come back, um, um, break the recess, and come on back and get it done in 21 before the year is out. So it's a step in the right direction. We've been pushing on this. But, you know, I think he can get even stronger with this language. He's done it before on other issues. He needs to do it right now on voting rights. Well, uh, time is of the essence here uh, because, frankly, uh, if this doesn't get done very soon, it's going to be too late because the primary season will be starting in a lot of these states. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. The primary season will be starting. Candidates are, are already declaring themselves based on some of these gerrymandered maps ballots are going to start to be printed um, in, in just a matter of weeks, if, if not in days, with some of those primaries, right? It, it reaches a point where even the courts, if they find that, that um, you know, some of these laws are discriminatory or that, that they were gerrymandered or, or if the legislation passes and they can do a look back, even if we get to that point, courts are very hesitant to start undoing electoral processes once they're in motion, once people have declared, once ballots have been printed, right? And so we are getting dangerously close. We're really past the point uh, of where we needed to get this done, but we're getting dangerously close to the point of no return. So uh, what is next? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're still pushing. You know, we, we got some phone banking going on even, even this week, right? We've been saying even though they went on vacation that – our movement's not necessarily on vacation, so there are folks all around the country that have been phone banking, calling the White House, calling senators, even this week, folks can go to our, our social media to, to get more information about that, like voters MTR on different social media platforms, but um, but the big thing that we're building up to is, is January 6th, there's going to be some types of commemorations around, of course, the, the anniversary of that takeover, and really pointing out the hypocrisy that a year later, a year later from this attack on democracy, Know, this this one day coup attempt that there's been this ongoing um, slow coup attempt taking place and yet here we are a year later and we still don't have voting rights right and so we're going to be um, having some actions in DC as well as in states across the country along with our partner organizations our coalition on, on voting rights um, to, to really point out that hypocrisy to make this push to make sure that, that Senator Schumer keeps his word he said that voting rights will be the first thing that they deal with when they get back and so we're going to be active during the break and on January 6th to make sure that happens. And then finally, as you know, Roland, there's been a call put out by um, by Dr. King's family himself, uh, Martin Luther King III, uh, and his family, along with other organizations, that we make sure, and, and the King Center in Bernice has, has agreed with this, that making sure that in this anniversary of Dr. King's birthday and his holiday, that, you know, while community service is important, I never want to, you know, dismiss um, community service, but that this is a year that, especially when we got to remind folks that Dr. King wasn't just about community service, he was about civil rights, he was about advocacy, he was about you know pushing pushing the envelope in order to get us the rights that we deserve. And so on this anniversary, on this holiday, we want to make sure that, that the holiday is, is used as an as a organizing point to make a final push for voting rights, if it has not already been passed by that point. Rishi, uh, this, um, uh, of course, finally uh, Biden saying this, is important, but saying stuff is one thing. He's got to use the power of his office to also push and get it done. Perhaps that's one theory about it. I still maintain where the hell is Chuck Schumer at. I mean, 
Biden doesn't have a magic wand over the Senate. The, the Senate and uh, Congress, House of Representatives are a co-equal branch of government. Sure, I think that Biden could be more forceful on the issue, but I still don't understand how the hell Chuck Schumer gets a free pass in all this. I mean, he's the one who um, adjourned the Senate without getting voting rights passed. Oh, he spent a whole 24 hours promising that he was going to get something done before the end of the year and still failed to do that. So I'm not a Biden apologist, don't get me wrong, but at the end of the day, I still believe fully that this is a responsibility that falls under Chuck Schumer. If he can tweet all day, every day about canceling student debt, then he can get in there and do his damn job as majority leader and try to figure out a way to uh, a path forward on the, the voting rights just the same way he did on the debt ceiling and the carve out for that. So I, this is a Senate process, and I still think that Chuck Schumer should be getting way more heat, exponentially more heat than what he's getting at this point. Faraji. Faraji? Yep, I got you. Um, I think this is even more interesting, especially considering the fact that you have 19 states this year who have enacted laws making it harder for Americans to vote, according to the uh, Brennan Center for Justice at New York University. And I mean, when you're looking at the uphill challenge of this situation, um, you got to bring that fire. You have to, and I'm with Cliff on this, Brother Cliff, and I appreciate you doing the work that you do. Uh, you've got to bring that bully pulpit. You've got to get that momentum going. 19 states, that is more than enough to shift the 22 election and 24 election. And, and right now, the Democrats aren't doing so well in terms of the, in, in the larger you know, conversation among the public. So you have to put this, if this is the number one bill domestically, then this has to happen. This can't go any longer. And I'm like, Cliff, it has to happen like in January. It's got to happen in February. I mean, something has to happen because I know Biden has tried to push this uh, Build Back Better uh, bill to come through, and that's not, that's not really working out so well. So this has to happen. That bully pulpit, I mean, I want to see some fire under somebody's ass at this point to make this bill happen. I made this point, Cliff. You also got to have uh, non-black groups also saying something and doing something. Boom. This, this yep. is the moment. I mean, this is, look, you, you got to get it done. It doesn't get done now. We're talking about guaranteed losing in 2022 midterms. No, you're absolutely right, Roland. You know, we, we, we got to have some other groups. And, and, and to be clear, you know, there's been a pretty wide coalition of folks that have been in, involved in this. You know, there's some, some indivisible groups and, and some other aspects of coalition. But it has not been enough. It, is, it has not been enough, um, you know, coming from some of our, our other allies, um, Latinx communities, or, or or even um, you know the, the Asian Pacific Islander community. This affects everybody, right? And so you know there's been a coalition, but there have not been enough voices involved in this. At the end of the day, you know a lot of times, and, and this is this is kind of you know been been part of the history that I'm sure you you're very much aware of. You know that that we are often the conscious of of, 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 of movement, right? That that we 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 push movement forward, right? That other folks oftentimes, you know, when, 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 when black folks start putting it down, then other folks get involved on the bandwagon because we bring that fire a lot of times to these coalitions. And so, you know, we've, we've got to be in this, this leading role that we've historically always been in, but we, we, we can't just be out there out front. And, and again, there, there has been a coalition. I don't want to 
Mr. Funk that we've been in the streets with legal women's voters, um, people for the American way, we're leading some of those White House, White House protests. Um, where I've got I've gotten arrested three, four times outside the White House at some of those events. So there has been a coalition, but we've got to have more voices involved in this. And and, and when we get that, and when we get this pressure being put on these senators, because I agree with Tracy, we, it's, it can't just be the White House. It's got to be on senators all across this country, even even not just Chuck Schumer. We need some more of them to be vocal. That has got to be, that's got to take a really wide coalition, because in some of these states where we need folks to speak up, to be honest, we're just not that deep, right? You know, we need, we need folks in Maine, you know, speaking up. We need folks in New Hampshire, you know, putting pressure on senators like Hassan, right? And so in some of these places, it's got to come from some other folks. So, so you're absolutely right, Roland, that we need more voices involved in this battle, especially during this final stretch that we're in. And then the last thing I'm going to say just real quick, I agree with, with the pressure on Senator Schumer. I was, I was at a protest in Brooklyn just down the street from his house a couple of months ago where we were calling him out. And so, and we're doing phone calls to Senator Schumer now. But at the end of the day, we got to be clear, nobody really remembers, uh, maybe some people do who are inside, in, inside the, the, the politics, who, who the Speaker of the House was when Obama got Obamacare passed, or who the, or who the, the Senate Majority Leader was when, when um, Lyndon B. Johnson got the Voting Rights Act passed, right? Th- that's All of that is legislation. Who was the, the Senate Majority Leader when, when, when Roosevelt got the New Deal stuff passed, right? At the end of the day, the president has got to use the bully pulpit if he's going to get movement and action on something that he called, that he called the biggest yep. attack on, on voting rights ever since the Civil War. Greg Carr. Just cut to the chase. The 50 members of the White Nationalist Party are in lockstep. Joe Manchin is a member of the White Nationalist Party for all intents and purposes. Mitch McConnell, now trolling with that cool laugh. We're going to invite him into the GOP. He, he's with them. Um, how much of this is really about their knuckle brawling with the White Nationalists? I mean, because what's the, what is the plan? I mean, when they move, in other words, we moved from Build Back Better to voting rights because Joe Manchin got orders to kill Build Back Better. There's nothing we can do to do that for him. He is, he is, he, he is serving the function he has to serve. And again, with all due respect, uh, we talk about Franklin Roosevelt. No, we were talking about going into World War II, and A. Philip Randolph and them came up and said, we're not going to participate unless we get some shots. That's what moved Frank Roosevelt. We talk about Lyndon Johnson, who was, it was in the streets, but it was also those lobbyists in the Hall of Congress. And we can talk about Obamacare, but the context is different now. They are playing, as you know, Ben Nazi, for all the marbles. This will determine the next generation and whether or not there will be a United States of America. And, and as, as, as someone who really doesn't have a dog in whether or not the country survives at some point, my question to you is, what is the plan to deal with the things that we have known since election night 2020. What What is the plan to deal with this white nationalist, Joe Manchin? I mean, and, and, and how do we get our people to think beyond this showbiz, soap opera, reality television, month-by-month exercise in pantomime theater as if this really isn't about increasing voting majorities, probably by getting people back to the polls who haven't been in years, rather than continue to act like we don't see what's right in front of our face. I need to hear a plan, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great point, and there's, there's two ways I would answer that, right? One is that, you know, we, we use the expression all the time, we got to be able to walk and shoot gum at the same time. Even as we've been fighting this voting rights battle, you know, don't get it twisted. We have not allowed it 
to get in the way of what our core mission is, right, which is building power in black communities. So even as we've been doing actions and demonstrations at the White House, even as we've been supporting groups in West Virginia, including black-led groups in West Virginia, even as we've been doing things like supporting the students in Arizona and their hunger strikes and, and targeting cinema and, and phone calls, focusing on the voting rights issue, be clear that we have still been in these streets organizing our communities, not just even just organizing electorally, right, and, and getting victories electorally like we saw in Georgia, you know, quiet as it was kept, there were 41 seats flipped in the state of Georgia during this recent uh, recent election. Now, I'm not, I'm not just about, you know, just, just flipping seats for Democrats. I don't mention that because that's a sign of the progress of the Democratic Party. I mention that because that's a sign of our people's organizing and winning seats in their communities, right? And so we've been doing that organizing work electorally. We've still been dealing with issues of police violence. We've still been supporting issues like, like in Minneapolis, the referendum that they had trying to have a historic change in, in, in their policing, right, and, and creating a Department of Public Safety. We've still been dealing with issues of food insecurity and environmental justice. So all of that work has still been going on. I'm just speaking about us and, and our organization. I'm just giving, you know, from my perspective of answer to your question, all of that work is still going on, and part of that work is also about being very clear about the nature of our relationship to this democracy. So even as we're pushing for voting rights, we always tell people our liberation is not rooted in, in electoral politics. That's not where our liberation is ultimately going to come from. It's important, and we do a lot of work on it, right? The, the organization is, is kind of named after that, but we are very clear that we have got to deal with these deeper issues that you're pointing out, Dr. Carr, in regards to white supremacy, and whether that's Joe Manchin's white supremacy. You know, uh, uh, Congressman Bowman caught some flack because he told some truth the other day in, a, in an interview talking about uh, Joe Manchin doesn't care about black people, brown people, poor people, women, right? And where's the lie? And so, you know, so we got to do that work of calling out white supremacy, Joe Manchin, as well as the wider white supremacy we see in this society. But we're trying to find a balance, and, and we're always open to suggestions we're trying to find that balance between dealing with these legislative issues, even as that ongoing, longer-term work is taking place in the streets. We stay in the streets, y'all. Uh, and again, uh, Cliff, one of the things people have to understand is that uh, a lot of the focus obviously has been on Manchin and Senator, but there are other Democrats who have been hiding behind those two uh, who have been protective of the filibuster. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's That's been part of what we were trying to do um, a week or so, maybe two weeks ago, on the day when the White House was doing a democracy summit. We had actually gone on in 10 different states targeting centers, including New York, where we targeted Schumer, right, including West Virginia, including Maine, including Georgia right here, where, where one of our centers, Senator Ossoff, has not been as vocal as, as I'd like to see, as many of us would like to see. So a lot of these centers, you know, people like Warner and and, and and Kane and Virginia, right, and Angus King, you know, we've been trying to call them out over the past couple of months because, again, you're absolutely right. There's other senators that have been hiding behind Manchin and Cinema. The good news is that over the past couple of weeks, some of them have even been coming out saying that they are now finally supporting filibuster reform and changing and changing the rules. And so the tide has been turning for the past couple of weeks with the, even, uh, like I said, Senator Hassan from, from New Hampshire, who never does interviews, came out and gave, did a, a floor speech and then did an interview on another network. And so they've been coming out the woodwork, um, but we still got to finish the deal. We still got to get Manchin over the top. And I believe, and a lot of other people believe, that once we get Manchin, 
um, that 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 Cinema won't won't be far behind because she doesn't want to be the only one brought out there. So you're right. We still got to keep the pressure on even the ones that have been coming out the past couple of weeks. Now is not the time to ease up. Now's the time to lean in and put our pedal, put a, put our foot on the pedal. All right, then, Cliff Albright, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. We sure appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, folks, got to go to break. We come back. Uh, initially, the Texas Party Parole Board said that George Ford deserved a posthumous pardon. Now they're rescinding that, citing procedural errors. I'll explain next right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. All right, folks, uh, let's uh, talk, talk about what's happening in Texas. The Texas Party Parole Board back in October voted to um, voted to extend a posthumous pardon to George Floyd. Now they are rescinding that, citing, oh, some procedural errors. Hmm. Normally, Texas Governor Greg Abbott announces around this time uh, his uh, pardons uh, and parole. Well... Uh, this is what, uh, so the Abbott office released a letter showing that the board had found, quote, unexplained departures from its process and needed to reconsider more than a third of the 67 clemency recommendations this year, including the one for Floyd. Now, they gave no details on what these errors were. People were very quite upset uh, by this. Allison Mathis, uh, who is a uh, lawyer out of Houston, a public defender, she was the one who made the request. She called this uh, a ridiculous farce to the governor explaining politics ahead of the March primary. Quote, it really strains credibility for them to say now that it's not, that it's out of compliance after the board has already voted on it. And remember, it was also a unanimous vote. Um, mm, see, this is what we can easily expect uh, a receipt from folks like Texas Governor Greg Abbott, uh, who is, frankly, one of the worst people I've ever seen in political office. Absolutely. I mean, he had no problems grandstanding and showing up at uh, George Floyd's funeral memorial services, but he's gone back on his word. I mean, the charge that uh, George Floyd was convicted of and actually spent 10 months in jail was over selling uh, $10, $10 worth of crack, Um, which I'm not saying it's okay to be selling crack, but for fuck's sakes, I mean, it was $10. It should be a no-brainer. To pardon him regardless of paperwork. I mean, I'm sure he's pardoned some lobbyists and some white-collar criminals 
without uh, without much of a thought. So um, this is where you have to always look at the actions beyond the gestures, beyond the showing up to shake hands and kiss babies and uh, pay lip service to black people and issues that they care about. So he, he needs to be a man of his word. He's not much of a man, but he could at least do that much. Um, look, this is, I mean, these are the little games that we always see played for Raju, especially from folks like uh, Greg Abbott. Uh, he is facing a March primary. And look, I mean, he's playing to the cheap seats. Oh, no doubt. No doubt at all. And, and the sad part about it is I bet you there are a bunch of folks in Texas that are still going to vote for this dude, even though they know that he plays these political games, even though, like you just said, Rola, I mean, if you look at his track record, he's just not good when it comes to racial justice issues, even though he grandstands, as Regent said. But the biggest thing that I, I want folks to see is let's see reality for what it is. Let's not get into a space, as we get into these 22 elections, that we get into a space that we impose our hopes and dreams on candidates when the reality shows that they are not even qualified to, 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 to fulfill those hopes and dreams. My thinking is, is that, look, what does it hurt to give a man who has already died a pardon? How does that become a political maneuvering oh, I got to figure it all out to see how I get my folks, you know, my voters will feel it. The man is already dead. May God be pleased with him, but the man is gone. At this point, he can't even gain the benefit of a pardon at this point. So I, I, I'm just saying that that we, we we make in situations every human life when it comes into this space, it doesn't have to be political. And that is the sad part about this whole thing is that every time a discussion about a reality, which is a man dies, now it becomes political because we don't even want to honor him or kind of just let him rest in peace because what? Oh, I don't want to upset my voters. I mean, it's just absolute insanity to me. And this is, this is part of the reason why, as much as we talk about politics, this is part of the reason why I just have a disdain for politics because politics takes the common sense out of people's heads. Greg? This is a white man's country. That was, those were words spoken by uh, Andrew Johnson, President of the United States after Abraham Lincoln. I think that that shovel-mouthed bastard, the governor of Texas, is a man of his word. His word is, this is a white man's country. George Floyd is a criminal. George Floyd is a drug addict. George Floyd is a hustler. George Floyd tried to pass a bill, and it's why he died in the street, and anybody else who tries to do that should die in the street. This is the mentality of many of these equally shovel-mouthed bastard white nationalists who are in the state of Texas. And what we saw today, uh, the, the parole board, he has appointed the vast majority, I think at this point he may have, he may have appointed or reappointed everybody on that 67-member Texas Board of Paroles. You would know the numbers better than I, I would, Ron, of course. And what you said, uh, you said it not in passing, but you just said it kind of, uh, of course. You nailed it, of course. The man is being primary. He's up for re-election. George Floyd is a criminal in the minds of his voters. Mm-hmm. So he is not, and, and, and whether it be, and, and let us not forget, as you said, Reese, you know, this isn't just about the George Floyd conviction. This is about Gerald Goings, the officer who arrested him, who is all kind of crazy, facing two murder charges, been accused of lying in all kind of cases justify warrants and his uh, drug raids, and 
and so there are any number of convictions that would be overturned because of Gerald Boyd, the guy who arrested him. And so this shovel mouth trying to win re-election, they have an agenda they have to complete. And whether it be Greg Abbott saying, I'm not going to pardon George Floyd. Now, if he wins the primary, and he, as you said, he's not being primary from the left. Imagine that. This whole ass racist who this time last year was willing to let people freeze, your family, my family, in Texas. Come on. This man is being primaried from the right. There's nothing to the right of him. Come in on, other words, there on. are people even more racist than him in Texas who are like, you show some respect. So if he gets past the primary, maybe he pardons George Floyd. But these people have shown us that they have no respect for anything that you can reduce to a three-letter word, L-A-W. Whether it be those members of Congress like, we ain't testifying, Benny Thompson, you go to hell. Or Greg Abbott saying, I see y'all, George Floyd really is a criminal, so I ain't gonna say nothing. So we gotta make them pay. We gotta quit acting like these are our friends or fellow citizens or members of the same country. This is a war. And until we, until we start acting like that, we just gonna keep taking these ass whippings. You know, uh, speaking of ass whippings, uh, I, I, I always enjoy watching the sheer stupidity uh, of two people, Donald Trump and Candace Owens, together. Uh, but it was uh, quite hilarious to watch uh, this idiot Candace Owens interview Donald Trump, and even he have to smack down her uh, stupidity when it comes to uh, the vaccine. Uh, y'all know I never, I, I don't give a damn about Candace Owens. I think she's one of the dumbest people uh, you've ever seen uh, in the world. She's a grifter. Uh, and matter of fact, her stupidity is only matched by the stupidity of Donald Trump. And so let's just call this segment uh, the Stuck on Stupid segment. And so we got to get a kick out of watching these two idiots talk to each other. Y'all, listen to this exchange. In terms of big pharma, which is a huge topic on the minds of, of mothers, especially you're seeing what's happening at these school board meetings. Where do you stand on these vaccine mandates? And obviously, I know that you are you are pro vaccine. Obviously, did everything you could to get this vaccine out. I know there was one of the greatest achievements we did in less than nine months and to be able to do that. Yeah, but, but now it's taken a twist, right? It's, it's gotten now we went from this is a good thing and people should have this option to military men, you're going to have to resign because you're not getting this vaccine. Where do you stand on that? Well, I stand on, forget about the mandates that people have to have their freedom, but at the same time, the vaccine is one of the greatest achievements of mankind. We would have had a 1917, remember the Spanish flu, killed perhaps 100 million people. Actually, it ended the First World War because the soldiers, was, a lot of people don't know that the soldiers got so sick. It was a terrible thing. There were no vaccines. There were no anything. I came up with a vaccine, with three vaccines. All are very, very good. I came up with three of them in less than nine months. It was supposed to take five to 12 years. And yeah, more people have died under COVID this year, by the way, yeah. under Joe Biden, right. than under you. And more people took the vaccine this year. So people are questioning Ooh, how the right. vaccine works, but yeah. some people aren't. Sure. The ones, the ones that get very sick and go to the hospital are the ones that don't take the vaccine. But it's still their choice. And if you take the vaccine, you're protected. But the results of the vaccine are very good. And if you do get it, it's a very minor form. People aren't dying when they take the vaccine. What about they, the masking of children? That's, that's a big I, one I for moms right now. I think it's a terrible right thing. I think it's a terrible thing. That flies in the face of science. The kids have a virtual 0% right. chance of dying of COVID, and yet they're insisting on these vaccine mandates. I mean, I'm sorry, on these um, the masking mandates, and now the, even the vaccine mandates for small children. Right. and. What's going on there? I think what's happening is you look at the masks where 
Fauci and a lot of other people said masks don't mean anything. All of a sudden, he becomes a radical masker. I don't like to see the kids with the masks on. They're sitting in school. They have a hard enough time sitting in school. It's like China. I've been it's, to China. Uh, well, maybe your China's education system's a hell of a lot better than ours. You know what? They're <laughs> rated number two or three, and we're rated number 44. But masking children, I mean, no, that, the way it looks, right? It doesn't look like a free country. Um, uh, I'm against it. Reese, you got to join that done. That idiot. <laughs> well, I, let me say, because, you know, she gets dragged for her, um, you know, non-trimmed, burnt edges all the time. Her hair is looking better. Her makeup is looking better. She's not sounding any more intelligent. Um, she, it's, it's, you know it's bad when Trump is the one who make a little bit more damn sense. I mean, he was talking about how China has a better education system, yes. how the vaccine is the greatest thing. It's like glitching the matrix, what is happening? Um, and so it wasn't going according to plan. I don't know who initiated this, but the, the interview definitely did not go according to plan. And I loathe to give Donald Trump credit for anything because he is, people forget so quickly, he is the most destructive politician who has, who has led to the degradation that we see today in terms of having a fact-based, science-based discourse in our society. Um, but in this case, he just so happened to, you know, keep it somewhat real. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually really laughable that somebody of her low stature and caliber and intelligence level was given the platform, even though I don't hold Trump in high regard, he was still a former president, as opposed to journalists, particularly black journalists, who are much more informed and, um, you know, maybe some of them wouldn't want to sit down with Trump, but it just goes to show when you buck dance and you grift for, you know, white supremacists, then you get doors open that really shouldn't be open because you're not equipped. And she's not equipped. And uh, at least, at least Trump somewhat had his wits about him in that interview for a change. This fool Greg trying to say, oh, the vaccine is killing people. And more of them are dying under Biden, and he's like, "Nah, I can be unvaccinated." <laughs> <laughs> well, that was quite a clip. I mean, I guess first of all, in, in, in terms of Donald John Trump, he's looking at her, and we all know what he's saying. Candorosa, uh, I mean, uh, almost what? <laughs> in other words, all black women the same as Donald Trump. He didn't, you know, and so I can't even imagine what was going through his head as he tried to check her. But I don't know where her web-based uh, talk show is, but the theme music should be, although he's probably charging about the nose for the uh, licensing fee to use it, uh, it should be from Sean Carter uh, and his sample, I'm a hustler, baby, and I want you to know. <laughs> Tell me about this. I'm about to go. This is two hustlers trying to figure out a way to game each other. It's, a, it, it's almost like you were watching how you, know, you just watch babies talk to one another and can't nobody else understand what they're saying, but the two babies seem to be understanding what each other saying perfectly well. That was an exercise in, I am the one. No, I am the one. This fool talking about he created the vaccine. 100 million people that Donald Trump can't let anybody displace his sense that he is at the center of his universe. Candace Owens was looking for the same thing in a point of entry. So basically what you end up with is a couple of babble. And when you, as you say, you put race and sex over it. Donald Trump ain't never met a black woman he didn't hate and then probably in his little tiny uh, effigy desire. So, I mean, that was an exercise in all the pathologies in the United States of America, and it was quite entertaining. Uh, Faraji? I would only laugh if people didn't follow both of them. Mm. Mm. The fact 
fact that people follow President Trump, the fact that people follow Candace Owens, the fact that we're, we are legitimately talking about this man being, you know, running for president in 2024 in spite of all of the, the cluster Fs of, of his presidency and his life, at, you know, up to this point. If people didn't follow him, this would be fun. This would be like, oh, okay, this is just something to laugh about. But the fact that people follow him, the fact that January 6th happened, the fact that we are, he's starting his own cable network show, network, the fact that uh, Candace Owens is, has some influence and power, all of these things is, it shows us that we are in a different America. And this is what we're talking about when we say the breakdown of democracy. This is what we're talking about when we're saying how serious the time is. We can't let our foot up off the gas when it comes to figuring out how we're going to carve out for ourselves as a people something for ourselves from this American apple pie. Because we can't put our faith in the situation. We can't even put the faith in them fully in the system because the system is not even taking a man like Donald Trump and penalizing him and punishing him for all that he has done. We all waiting for the, for the shoe to drop on Donald Trump. And guess what? Every time news about his, his associates come out and people getting you know arrested, people getting charged and all of these things, we like on like bated breath like, oh, is Donald Trump next? And guess what? It never gets back to him. And this is the same system that we're supposed to believe has our best interest. This is the same system that, that we want to put our faith in. And then, you know, when we're talking about the vaccines, we're talking about all of this. Now we're seeing the CDC came out and said that 79% of the Omicron, uh, 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 that, oh, the Omicron cases are with vaccinated people. So now <laughs> it goes, the, the narrative changed again. Oh, it's now it's not the pandemic of the unvaccinated. It's a pandemic that we all fit. Come on. This is a bunch of bullshit. And it's sad because why? The human lives are being politicized. We are like in recent, you said the matrix. When I saw the matrix yesterday, we are in that matrix. We are being used. We are being bamboozled, as Michael next thing. We are just being just pushed around. And we got to wake up to the fact that this is the modern day America that we're currently living in. This is a very, very serious and dangerous time that we're living in. And it, as much as we want to laugh, as much as I want to say this man is an idiot, and much as us don't have a love or, or really, you know, anything for Candace Owens, the fact is people are following and listening to them and more importantly, believe in their vision of America. Well the, issue, well, the, well, the issue that we're facing right now is, is I mean, one, uh, we talk about uh, the issue of vaccinated versus unvaccinated. It's really right now what's happened to our hospital system. Uh, we're going to be having uh, Dr. Peltz joining us uh, shortly, and that is the people who currently are in ICUs and the people who currently uh, are, are passing away. Four out of the five people who are dying of COVID are those who are unvaccinated. So the problem that we're facing right now is, uh, again, as somebody who, who's sitting here uh, who got diagnosed with COVID uh, positive test on Saturday, not having to go to the hospital, uh, having uh, ha having the mild symptoms, that's now that's also now where we are, the stresses that are still being put on our health system. The concern, and once the doctor joins us, the concern that we have now over this, this Christmas season coming up and people traveling, folks going home is who are the people uh, who are going to be 
uh, rushing into uh, these, uh, to, to, uh, rushing in, into the hospitals. That's really where we are right now, and that's of great concern. That's true, bro. I mean, first of all, brother, when you let us all know uh, that you know you you had uh, had taken and contracted the virus, I think it's it's in a shockwave. But I'm gonna tell you, man, as you say, you're not in the hospital, thank God, and that's because you've been vaccinated uh, and uh, and had scheduled your booster. Booster. I've been vaccinated. I, I got the booster a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago now. And I went and got tested uh, around the corner, which is as a matter of course. And I'm going to tell you, and I know you, we've all seen the same thing. The lines outside the testing places mm-hmm. are stretching everywhere. People are terrified. And I'm sure we're all getting, you know, Reese, Faraji, Roland. I'm sure we're all getting message after message every day from friends and families and acquaintances um, who are, are, are finding that they've contracted the coronavirus or they know people who have. And it's Omicron, and it's spreading like wildfire. Uh, Harvard has said they're going to go online for the first part of 2022. I expect Howard and everybody else is going to do the same thing. And, and, and finally, we're faced with, uh, it's not, as, as you say, Faraji, it's not just a, uh, a, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. However, for every person who is out there unvaccinated, and I'm sure we've all heard these stories, I've heard a lot of my doctor friends of people who are desperate desperate because they have contracted the coronavirus, they were unvaccinated, some of them have passed away, but for every person who walked into an ER in a hospital in that situation, there's somebody else with all of the other procedures, all the other emergencies that we have who can't get in the hospital. And and this healthcare system has never been robust. It is going to be overwhelmed. And, and mm-hmm. I don't know about y'all, but I, I'm sensing there's a real panic that's spreading in this country over, over the, just over the last couple of weeks. Can I say something, though, too? Cause uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Rishi, then uh, Faraji, go. Yeah, and, and you know, Faraji, I, I, I take issue with, with, with uh, the, the, the narrative, the pandemic of the unvaccinated, because I have an unvaccinated eight-month-old. And um, the fact that you have children under five, eight, five years of age who don't have the ability to get vaccinated is very distressing, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of movement there. I don't think that it's okay the way that the testing has not been scaled up. I mean, the CVSs around my house have stopped doing uh, uh, COVID testing. I went to get a rapid test on Friday from the um, CVS. There were plenty of kids. By Monday, there were no kids available to, to take from home. So there, there, there are so many things that we need to be doing. It can't all fall under the federal government. There are Republican governors, for instance, that are obstructing the COVID pandemic response. But the bottom line is that we all have a shared vested interest, and that's why it's called public health, and seeing to the end of this pandemic. But the reason why so many people are getting um, vac- getting COVID despite being vaccinated is because so much, most of the country is fully vaccinated. And uh, the, the, uh, the efficacy wanes after about six months, which is why we need boosters, and the, the messaging behind that has been disastrous. So I, I agree with you, Faraji, about this whole pandemic of the unvaccinated. I don't think it's constructive or helpful. But yeah. I think that it's one of the, the vaccine is a very major tool in our toolkit. And uh, boosters is a very major tool. And people who are willing to get it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into all the stuff about people that don't want to get it. But people who are willing to get it, get your booster shot. Um, and, you know, make sure you're doing more testing to protect you and your family. I mean, I have, I had COVID. I had COVID. Uh, my family and I had COVID back in August of, of this year. And we're unvaccinated. I'm going to just say it. We're unvaccinated. And, you know, I thank God that we were blessed to get through it um, and that we weren't hospitalized or anything like that. 
And so, you know, I think that, that we have to look at what what alternative means, what other things are, are, are going to be done. Um, I don't like the fact that, you know, we can go back and forth and say vaccinated versus unvaccinated. But what I'm seeing out of this family is that, you know, you got a country that is going at odds and at war with one another over drugs, over drugs. Now they have just approved, the, the FDA just approved um, the pills um, from Pfizer, the uh, Pavlo, uh, I think it's called uh, Paxil, Paxlovid, uh, the, the new pill that's going to be out, the uh, FDA just approved Merck's pill. Now we have from vaccines and booster shots. Now we're getting pills now. And I mean, it's just a very, very, um, the, the, the conversation around medication and, and, and the efficacy of this whole process is still very shoddy. You know, we're hearing some stories about people are still, you know, are starting to experience some, some side effects and some, some very severe consequences. But my point is, is that we're still well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're hearing that people are experiencing some serious side effects. What? That, that's a general statement. So, so from side effects from, from boosters, you know, like people are, you know, uh, uh, my, my wife's fr uh, friend, mother, had just gotten her booster shot, and she had a, uh, like, a, a breathing problem. You know, she was saying, like, I, I you know, I got, I got vaccinated, I got my booster shot, and I have a breathing problem. And look, I'm not going. I'm not going to go back and forth about vaccinated and unvaccinated. I think that's all comes down to your personal choice. But I do want to say that if we're looking at where this country is going and how this thing is moving, it's it's like we 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 are all being just like they say the matrix sheeple. You know what I mean? We're just being shuffled along, shuffled mm -hmm. along, and, and and being told, hey, we need to do it this way. We need to do it that way. And 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 then what? Then you have a variant like Omicron. That they're saying, hey, it, the vaccine may not be as quite as effective. But, that's, but, but, but the issue when you talk about being shuffled, the mm -hmm. issue that the, the greatest issue that people are concerned about is being shuffled to graveyards. When you have yeah, 827,000 people who've died, that's right. one. When you have right now, when you have right now, the number of people who are in hospitals, who are in ICUs, who are requiring hospitalization. And then when you look at who are the individuals that are there, first of all, out of the five, one out of five people who has passed away, they've actually been vaccinated. That in terms of, that means four out of five. In 2021, four out of the five people, out of five who have passed away uh, as well of COVID, have not been vaccinated. Then you also put on top of that pre-existing conditions, things along those lines. There's mm -hmm. some people who have autoimmune deficiencies. Uh, they they might have kidney issues and other things as well. And so and so you're dealing with that. What we are, but what we are dealing with though, it, it is reality. And a real in the reality that I keep saying is, ain't no flip side to death. Mm -hmm. And so and so where people are right now. And so here here are some basic questions. That people got to be got to be asking themselves: If a person chooses not to get vaccinated, should they be should they be first in line at a hospital? That's if they go have to go. No, 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 no. But 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 if they do, if they chose not to get vaccinated, then to Greg's point, when they're no one no one second one second to Greg's point, because of where we are with ICU. 
there are people who need other, who That's need right. those beds. That's right. People right. who mm-hmm. need surgeries who are unable to do so as a result of individuals with COVID taking up ICU beds. That's a real issue. Doc, we've, we've had doctors on our show talk mm-hmm. about they are facing that. How do we deal with that? We want, you know, when you're talking about who has access, I mean, are we living in a country now that we, we, we determine, oh, okay, you come into the hospital, what's your status? No, 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 I asked a very specific question. For instance, for instance, that was a, that was a, that was a man who had pancreatitis in Texas, mm-hmm. okay? He had pancreatitis in Texas. Easily should have survived because of the step, because of the lack of ICU beds. There was not there was not an ICU bed in a 100 mile radius of where he lived. He eventually passed away. Many of those people who were in ICUs were people who were unvaccinated who had COVID. And so I'm asked I'm asking a question, and that is how do we deal with that if individuals have chosen not to get vaccinated, but are so sick they got they take they're taking up ICU beds. What decisions do us should we make? I mean, I, th- I think it comes down to what you're saying, Brother Roland. That man had pancreatic cancer. I don't know the condition. No, 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 no. He no, did not have no, no. He did not have pancreatic cancer. He had pancreatitis. That's different. Okay. Yes, sir. My point is, if his condition is is as severe that he needed to be hospitalized, but we don't know, and I don't know the condition of the unvaccinated who had used up those beds in that case. I don't oh, know. Maybe wait, wait, their condition wait, wait. was more severe. I, I can't, and I'm not saying that he deserves to die because I don't think anybody deserves to die if you have access to, a, if you can get the care that you need. But I do know that we have to just take it, I think, in my case, by case basis. We can't just paint a broad stroke and make a general assessment about the situation like this as if people want to put other people's lives at risk. We, it, it's, it's not that, and I mean, I know we say public health, but people do have the choice to make the decisions that they need to make. If but, we but, say but, public but, but, health, doesn't that rest on choice? But a person's choice, but an a, a individual's choice is having an impact on other individuals. Greg, you were trying Absolutely. to get in. Absolutely, same thing. We can say Greg, the same thing about smoking. We can say the same thing about smoking. We can say the same thing about smoking? other. Uh, 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 yeah, but people still smoke. You know, Reese. You know, people smoke wherever well, they well, want to well, go. Well, yeah, well, but 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 there's been a massive, there's been a massive shift in public policy, public health policy over the issue of smoking. Greg, go ahead. Yeah, I'll just keep this very quick, Roland. And again, and this is again, and we say this every every night in this space. This is why the Black Star Network is so important. I'm not a medical doctor. I don't even pretend to be one. I have had over the last almost 30 years now teaching a number of students who have gone out to medical school who practice. I have a number of friends, like we all do, who are medical doctors, who are researchers. But when I watch night after night on this show, you bring in black doctors, researchers, our man at North Carolina A&T, the brother out of Mississippi, uh, Ebony J, all over and over and over again. It it confirms what I think probably all of us are hearing from our friends and comrades who are medical doctors. I'm all the time from Atlanta, from Baltimore, from Dallas, from New York City, 
story after story after story that the ERs are being overwhelmed. I'm talking about doctors. See, I'm not a doctor. So the best I can do, I'm not about to try to go replicate the research of doctors. There's a story out now, of course, about the scientists at Walter Reed who apparently are saying they, they've invented a super uh, uh, vaccine that's going to protect against us. But I'm not, to, to, to the point you always make, Reese, I'm not going to accept that. I don't know if I can bet that. I'm looking at the news outlets coming from, but I know one thing for sure. I can tune into this channel and look and listen to doctors who look like me, who sound like me, who have been through the same experiences I have been, and I can weigh what they say against what I'm hearing from all kind of people who are medical professionals, and I would rather base my informed opinion on what they are saying than attempt to wade into a field that it takes people literally decades of study just to be able to walk in the door to have an opinion. It just doesn't make sense to me. Now we do have we do have folks who don't look like us who I appreciate coming on the show. Oh, no question, uh, no Dr. Peter Hotez is co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital uh, in Dallas. Excuse me, in Houston, my hometown. Always glad to have him here. Uh, and, and, and Doc, give, give us a, a sense of, of of where we are. Look, we keep hearing Omicron versus Delta. We've seen cases explode. As I, as I said, I'm sitting here in quarantine right now, uh, testing positive for COVID on Saturday. Uh, but pretty much, you feel uh, 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 you know, a little stuffy nose, uh, still occasional cough, but that's it. No fever, nothing else, no shortness of breath, uh, none of that. Uh, and, and, and just getting better by the day. Feels like I, you know, I feel like I, when I had allergies. Um, um, but we are still in an international pandemic pandemic facing a crisis because hospitals are being overwhelmed and many of those people are unvaccinated. Yeah, let me give you a points and let us take it from there. First of all, this Omicron wave is like nothing we've seen before in the sense that it is accelerating at a rate we've never seen before. It is the most transmissible of all of the um, COVID variants by quite a lot, almost as transmissible as measles, maybe as transmissible as which is the most transmissible virus agent we know. And so that's why you're seeing the steep rise, especially in New York and Washington. And, um, and, P and now the hospitalizations are picking up in New York and Washington. There's a buzz out there that's saying Omicron may not be as serious as the previous lineages like Delta, et cetera. I don't think that's the case. I think it's probably going to be as serious among the unvaccinated. Um, for reasons that we can go into, but we are starting to see hospitalizations in New York and Washington, and it's going to be across the country. That's point one. Almost all of those hospitalizations are going to be among people who've not been vaccinated. The, uh, the number that's about out there is about 85, 87% of the severe illness and deaths are, are among the unvaccinated. The others mostly among the partially vaccinated. So we'll see that same pattern again. But here's the second hit we're going to face right now. Because this is so transmissible, and we are seeing that the booster shot is not quite as effective um, as the other boosters, as was pointed out. It's as effective at preventing death or serious illness, but it's not as effective at preventing symptomatic infection. So the problem that we face, this very unique wave, is that in addition to unvaccinated piling into the hospitals and ICUs, the healthcare workers, a lot of them are going to get breakthrough symptomatic infection even after their booster 
which is not going to land them in the hospital, but it's going to keep them at home and out of the workforce. So you're going to see, we've already had a depletion of our healthcare workforce over the last two years for a lot of reasons for attrition and, and burnout and all of the other factors that we've been hearing about. But on top of that, we're going to knock out an additional big segment of the workforce. And we know that mortality, death rates really climb when hospitals are going to get overwhelmed. And so that's what I'm worried about. It's going to be the unvaccinated piling into hospitals, and there's not going to be enough doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists to take care of them. And you're going to see mortality really start to climb. If, and two, two other things, and then I'll stop, which is sure. the other thing we're finding is with this highly mutated virus, two of the three monoclonal antibodies that we have are not working. So we're not going to have as many treatment options. That Paxlovid medicine from Pfizer, forget it. It's not going to be ready in time for this wave. It's going to take months before we have enough of it. So we've got a lot of vulnerabilities, and our only real hope is that we persuade the unvaccinated to start getting vaccinated now, get that vaccination series. Uh, otherwise, we're going to repeat what we've already just experienced. And what we've just experienced, Rolling, and you alluded to it, is that since June 1 of this year, over the last six months, 200,000 unvaccinated Americans have needlessly lost their lives because they refused, refused COVID vaccines, including the first death that we've had from Omicron last night, Houston, an individual an individual who was infected, recovered, but decided not to get vaccinated on top of it because Omicron can cause reinfections very easily. So that 200,000 number of people who threw their lives away because they refused to get vaccinated over the last six months, that number is scheduled to double now, uh, between now and the first quarter of, of, of 2022, the 400,000 Americans whose lives could have been saved, but they chose not to get vaccinated. And so that's why I'm here late on a, on a Thursday evening before Christmas to work with you, Roland, to do whatever we can to get people to get vaccinated. So, Doc, explain this. Explain this. Why, again, um, you know, uh, Faraji brought up an example of someone who he knows or he heard an example of someone who had a side effect as a result of getting the booster. There are people who are afraid uh, to take the vaccine. There are others, the people who have been mocking me, doing videos, saying, oh, look, here he is out here touting the vaccine, and, he's, and he, he got uh, COVID himself. And I keep explaining to people, well, the vaccine was never designed uh, to prevent someone uh, from actually uh, getting COVID. And so um, if there's somebody who's sitting here who's saying, I'm unvaccinated, I'm not doing it, my family's not doing it, just lay out the risks that are involved. Well, the risk is, uh, as I say, the overwhelmingly the people who are dying in this pandemic right now are those who are unvaccinated. So you can you would take a high take a huge chance to joining to your two hundred thousand fellow Americans who also refused to get vaccinated and lost their lives since June one because I say that number number is now projected to double. Here's what happens if you get vaccinated. If you get vaccinated, this Omicron variant is 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 got a lot of escape mutations, which means that the vaccines, it's true, are not as effective against Omicron as they were against Delta and Alpha and other previous variants. So what that means 
is the vaccines now are still saving your life and still keeping you out of the hospital, but they're not always preventing symptomatic infection. It's about 75% protection against symptomatic infection versus Omicron versus 95% versus the previous lineages. So it's still pretty good, not as good. And that's why Roland, you had a breakthrough symptomatic infection, but you're talking on a radio and national radio broadcast um, with a cold rather than intubated in an intensive care unit. That's the effect of the vaccine. And, and so that's the message. You've got to get vaccinated and you've got, and we have to stop this business of saying you've been infected and recovered. You don't need to get vaccinated. That's just one of the phony anti-vaccine talking points. As I said, we just had our first Omicron death for a person who got infected and recovered and chose not to get vaccinated. So that is the reality. Reese, um, go right ahead. I have a comment for Faraji, but I'll save that um, for another time. For now, I want to um, ask Dr. Hotez. Um, so I have an eight-month-old, and um, I am scheduled for travel, and I feel like the messaging is all over the place. I feel like there's more political messaging about, well, if you're vaccinated, you can, you know, go on ahead and enjoy your time with your family. Um, but then I have the, I see all of the, 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 the doctors and epidemiologists and virologists are like, hair on fire, this is a red alarm. Um, uh, you know, crisis. Um, I'm not asking you to give me specific medical advice, but I guess for those that are that are potentially traveling with unvaccinated children, um, based on the modeling that you're seeing, what comfort level would you express with with traveling with unvaccinated children over the next two weeks? Yeah, we have seen a lot of um, a lot of happy talk come out of Washington D.C. this week. I was a little surprised by it. You know, it's something that this it's this transmissible. I think there is a pretty good risk um, if you're going through airports and bus terminals and, and Uber rides, you're going to be exposed to Omicron. And if I were traveling, you know, with, and with your baby, who's you said eight months old, you know, masking is not really an option. Um, there is risk, and we are seeing pediatric hospitalizations now with this Omicron variant. It was a big problem in South Africa. It was true of the Delta variant here in the South, here in Houston and Texas. Texas Children's Hospitals, which I know Roland knows well, had a lot of pediatric hospital admissions. So I'm not a big fan of, of traveling with an unvaccinated individual, whether it's because someone's refusing to get vaccinated or because someone's too young to get vaccinated. Let me tell you my own my own situation at home. So um, I live in Houston. My oldest daughter lives in L.A. She came to see us, and we were going to have my mother-in-law come down. We were going to fly her down from New Jersey and um, you know spend a week with us, go to the restaurants, maybe a museum. I disinvited her, and the reason I disinvited her is in her case she is fully vaccinated and boosted, um, but because it's been a while since she got that boost. We know that breakthrough symptomatic illness does go up the further you're out from the boost. And I didn't want to chance it with someone in their in their 80s because they won't do as well as, as, as Roland did with his breakthrough symptomatic illness. So I said, let's not chance it right now. Let's hold off on, on this for a while. The hope is that this big wave will go down as fast as it's going up. We don't have strong evidence for it, but there is a possibility. And that would be the best possible outcome because... Um, now that the kids are out of school, they'll be out of school for a few weeks. By the time they're ready to go back to K-12 or go back to university or college, hopefully um, we'll be on the downside of the downslope of this, this big wave. No guarantees, but I think 
That's one possible scenario. Thank you. Faraji? Thank you so much for joining us. So, Doc, talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, we're hearing all of these different, you know, if, I mean, you're bringing up information about the effectiveness, the efficacy of certain of this vaccine and booster compared, you know, when it comes to Omicron. But how should people look at all of this stuff? Because, again, you know, I'm not into going back and forth about vaccinated, unvaccinated. I stay masked up and I know people that have stayed masked up and, you know, we you, you can still get it. So, so I'm talking about assuring people of, of that, that this situation that we're dealing with can be handled. Because what I'm seeing right now, doctor, is that they're saying that the more that vaccines are being developed, that more variants, more mutations may occur. So can you give us some insight about that, sir? Yeah, and that's that, actually... And, and, and doc, just as you, because you may not have been on earlier... Uh, where, where Faraji said that and he previously got COVID, but he and his family are not vaccinated. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah no, so so this is one of the kind of the fake talking points that's out there, that they make the claim that vaccines are actually inducing the mutations to cause the variants. Here's the reality. The reality was that our worst pandemic threats arose out of unvaccinated populations. So the alpha variant arose out of an unvaccinated population southern England in 2020, Delta arose out of an unvaccinated population in India at the beginning of 2021, and Omicron arose out of a mostly unvaccinated population in southern Africa, either South Africa or Botswana, uh, towards the end of this year. And that's why we keep getting these variants, because nobody has come up with a plan to vaccinate the southern hemisphere. The African continent um, has been left almost totally unvaccinated, about 6%. So that's what we do at our labs. We're making low-cost vaccines for parasitic infections and for COVID. We have a low-cost recombinant protein vaccine that we've uh, made with no patents. Um, we transferred the technology now to um, India, Botswana, uh, uh, Indonesia, and Bangladesh. And the one that's furthest along is the one in India with our partners there known as Biological E. And now it will be released for emergency use authorization. It's the least expensive of the vaccines out there. And it's the same technology as the hepatitis B vaccine. Very few side effects. Looks like the best safety profile. And the Indian government is now um, uh, has ordered 300 million doses. So we're hoping now that this can come in to prevent all of these uh, new variants from emerging. So that's the problem. Is we, the more we allow large populations to go unvaccinated, we'll continue to chase our tail with these variants. Thank you, sir. And we actually, in last year, um, uh, the doctor, the scientist from North Carolina A&T we had on, that was one of the things that he said. He said, we've got to get as many people tested and vaccinated in order to uh, stem uh, these various mutations. He said, because when it jumps from one body to the next, it's going to start mutating uh, left and right. Uh, Greg Carr, um, uh, any question uh, for Doc? Thank you, Roland, and thank you, Dean Hotez. Um, you, you've kind of given part of the answer in, in, in responding to Faraji's question about this, this question of the global pandemic and where nobody is safe, and I read your comments on being against travel bans, and it makes perfect sense, although I, I can't imagine that the pharmaceutical companies are very happy with you and your team as you're starting to give away 
uh, proprietary uh, <laughs> to, to vaccines, but we must get everybody in the in the world. You know, you know, I I appreciate that point. I, as I say, is if we had gotten even ten percent of the amount of money Moderna had gotten and some of these others, we could have had the world vaccinated by now, in my opinion. Absolutely, absolutely. But that's a different discussion, I guess, for a different day. No, no, actually, well, it is actually leads to my question, and I'm glad that you began the answer with answering Faraji. And my question is this: as an educator and one who one of my best students, former students, is a doctor, pediatrician in Atlanta. And she's very much what you've said there. She's confirming that what she's seeing in Atlanta. My question is, what do you see happening in the first quarter of, of 2022 as it relates to schools, uh, K-12, uh, higher ed? Uh, are we looking at another shutdown in this country? Boy, I sure hope not, because I don't think our kids could handle it. Um, you know, and as a, a parent of formerly young kids, now they're adults, I, don't, I know I couldn't have handled it. Um, we've got to get our kids back in school um so i'm really really hoping that we get this big wave way down because i don't know that as a, as a nation you know we need our kids in schools uh if you remember uh, a couple of days ago the u.s surgeon general by mcmurky excellent surgeon general came out with a report on the mental health impact of this covid 19 pandemic on our kids and it's just devastating and, and it's not only because of the classroom education, but remember, you know, you all know better this than anyone that in many of our inner city schools, that school is the place where you go get breakfast or you go get lunch or, or, or you get your mental health counseling. And so the impact of not having kids in school is just multiplied times four or five. So uh, we've got to, we've got to make that a priority. All right, so doctor, here's a question that I have, and again, um, just trying to un trying to un understand this. Uh, okay, so my first symptoms showed up um, last Wednesday. I was with a scratchy throat, and then um, the next day I had chills, had a fever. Uh, tested negative on Thursday, did one of the rapid tests, and then they said the next would take 36 hours after that. On Saturday, I tested positive. Uh, and so I came back. I was in Atlanta. I came back. By, by the way, that's a pretty common story. So this is one of the interesting things about Omicron. There seems to be a lag um, between. A, so when you're first infected, the PCR is positive, but your antigen test is negative because there's still not enough virus there. Mm -hmm. And then it comes up after that. So, so that's actually not surprising. So the you had the, the rapid home test was probably the antigen test that was a false negative. She had the virus. That's not surprising, but the PCR came back positive. Right. And so I, so then I went into, I got home to Virginia on Sunday and went into quarantine. So the 10 day period, is that at the beginning of symptoms or when you test positive? And so, and then um, how do you know, like, like what, what needs to happen for you to come out? So is it uh, complete stuffing is gone? Is it no cough or so? How do you? I believe the recommendations are 10 days from the first onset of symptoms. Plus, you have to be at least 24 hours with no symptoms at all. Got so it. You meet those two criteria. Got now, it. Meaning no cough, no, no stuffing is nothing like that. Right, right, right. Um, now, I mean, I'll, I, I can check it as well, but I mean, it's also a moving goalpost because the CDC just made a change tonight um, for the healthcare providers. And I have to make certain it doesn't extend to other groups. 
which is that now they're saying because we can't afford to have their healthcare workers out of the workforce for 10 days. So now, right. so in the UK, what they did is now after seven days, if you test negative, you can go back to work. Um, and I think they require two tests. But in the US, they're going to require a single test. So you can go back to work after seven days. And, and that just came out literally within the last hour. Now, when I, what I was told is that uh, even when I come out, I still might test positive for two or three weeks, but I'm no longer contagious. Explain yeah, that's that. right, because that PCR test is so sensitive, you're, it's picking up remnants of the virus genome. So even though you're not shedding enough virus to infect people, you might still be positive. And that's the, recommend, that's the reason why we often recommend not testing again, because you could be testing positive literally for weeks. So when, so, so when should I take a test? You don't. Don't. That's unless you start feeling sick again, and then. So, so, so the most important thing is, is that all symptoms are gone. Meaning, no, there, there's no, there's no longer a cough. There's no longer a uh, slight stuffiness. All that's gone. Pretty much, yeah. And then, um, and then you should be good. You don't need to get tested again because if you get tested again, it creates a lot of confusion. Then you, you could be positive, but you're positive. You're still not shedding virus, and then, then, then. Yeah, I would, I would just hold off and, and not test again if you're not having symptoms at the test. So, so the last point here for you is that uh, for everybody who's watching, who's listening, uh, the advice is that if you are unvaccinated, uh, you're putting yourself uh, and others at serious risk uh, of... Um, uh, Hospitalization of, and, and, and death. But, you know, Roland, there's one other thing that nobody talks about which I want to bring up, and that is we don't talk enough about long COVID, um, where your symptoms linger for sometimes a year in terms of not fever and acute symptoms like um, a runny nose, but you feel fatigue, you have heart palpitations, you feel tightness in your chest. We're learning a lot about that, and there's a very important study that was uh, published this year out of the United Kingdom. You know, the United Kingdom has a real health system, unlike the U.S., where we have Amazon Pharmacy. And 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 that study, they have 40,000 MRIs on file. Um, uh, everybody is in, who had an MRI is registered in the U.K. system. This is pre-pandemic. And then they can bring them back now that they've had COVID to compare before and afterwards. And it's showing some pretty frightening stuff like gray matter brain degeneration and the MRI looks or your brain scan looks like somebody who's 20 years older associated with cognitive decline and that's the other piece we don't talk about it's not only going into piling into hospitals into ICUs this could be with you um, for years and especially if you're a young person you don't want this happening where you've got uh, gray matter brain degeneration and a cognitive decline when you're trying to start a family or a new job or taking your SATs or, or uh, you, know, you know, trying to get a mortgage on your house. And so that's going to haunt us for a long time as well. Yet another reason to get vaccinated. Uh, last question, Doc. Uh, the, the, the infusion. I did get that. It was the Regeneron when I was in Atlanta. Um, uh, do you also recommend that if people get a positive COVID test, they, and they're able to find a place that does it, but they get the, the they, they get that uh, infusion. Up in, 
until two weeks ago, I would have said yes, but now the problem is this, with this Omicron variant, that's gonna be the overwhelming one. That Regeneron monoclonal antibody um, probably is not gonna do much, much for you, and neither is the one from Lilly. So that's what I mean, two of our monoclonal antibodies have been knocked out in terms of being useful for this Omicron variant. And that only leaves the one from uh, what's known as Veer and GlaxoSmithKline, and there's not a lot of it around. So this is, again, why we need to get vaccinated. We, we kind of lost one of our major weapons, monoclonal antibodies. We won't have that Paxlovid medicine from Pfizer. Um, so we don't have a lot of, we don't, we've lost some really, we either don't have or have lost some really important tools. It's just a reminder why you need to get vaccinated. And even if you've been infected and recovered, like, like, like our, our friend that, that I was speaking to, we need to get that person vaccinated because that's that's the only way to really prevent Omicron reinfection and prevent all of the things that we're talking about. Gotcha. So with this is the last question, but you just said that. So first of all, I, I, I don't I haven't even, I've taken a PCR, so I don't know if I got Omicron or what is it. It's just simply a something. Yeah, the PCR won't tell you. It's a specialty kind of genomic testing, but they're not doing it on everybody. So, so now that I've had this, uh, are, can you get Omicron again? Probably won't get Omicron again, but um, but you may want to get another booster down the line, depending on how things go. They they haven't come out with that recommendation yet. Well, I can't. Well, but, well, because I got the infusion, I can't do a booster for ninety days. For ninety days, that's so right. I have to wait until March. Right. That's but right. But trust, but trust me, when March hits, I will be getting a booster. So, so let's just go through, go through a couple of a few brief scenarios. If you're unvaccinated at all, you're asking for trouble. Get your vaccine serious. If you've gotten two doses of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, get that booster because that booster can make the difference between going to the hospital or not. Um, if you um, are infected and recovered and you've not gotten vaccinated, get vaccinated. If I'm starting to sound like a broken record here, um, it's deliberate. It's get vaccinated, get vaccinated, get vaccinated. And by the way, if your kids are five and up, get them vaccinated too. So we're doing a terrible job vaccinating our kids. All right. Uh, well, uh, Doc, we certainly appreciate uh, you coming on uh, again. Dr. Peter Hotez, co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development uh, at the Great Texas Children's Hospital uh, in Houston's. Uh, thanks a lot. Thank you, Roland. You know, I know you come to Houston a lot. You're not visiting me. So once this apocalypse is over, I want to show you around our labs, how we're making vaccines for COVID and show you all the changes that have happened over our great Texas. Oh, no, that, that'll, that'll absolutely happen. I was home for, uh, I was in Houston for Thanksgiving uh, and I was planning to go home uh, to Houston, Dallas. My parents live in my home there uh, for Christmas, but I got diagnosed and then uh, my sister did who lived there. So I said, well, heck, if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to go back home. Uh, we'll go home anyway. So right. well, the other the other reason is I want to give you a big hug because, you know, you've been one of the really strong voices in the African-American community that has really, you know, pushed for science driven, evidence based COVID prevention measures. And uh, you're worth your weight in gold. You're just a great man. I appreciate it, and trust me, I will be coming back home to H-Town uh, uh, real soon. Doc, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. All, Bye, all right. Thanks a bunch. Uh, that is it for us. Uh, any final comments? Faraji, Reese, Greg? I do. I have a final comment. Go right ahead. 
I just wanted to respond, Faraji. I know we're always on your case, but you made a comment about sheeple and shuffling. And let me tell you, Faraji, I will Cupid shuffle, I will cha-cha slide, I will electric slide for my booster every six months. And they say three months, whatever it is, because I am able to protect my baby or partially protect her through uh, breastfeeding. And it's important to me to keep her as safe as possible because she ain't nowhere near before she's getting the vaccine. But I also want to comment on the sheeple part, too, because... Um, 65% of the disinformation and misinformation out there about the vaccines is from the what they call the disinformation dozen. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with his so-called children's health defense is the main purveyor of disinformation, and it targets the black community. I did an article about this and wrote about it in the Brio. And his own wife, now this is a staunch uh, anti-vaxxer. His wife is Cheryl Hines, who's on Curb Your Enthusiasm. When they had a party at their home, she requested that people be vaccinated for testing. So I think it's really strange that the biggest anti-vaxxer purveyor in the black community or towards the black community is married to a person who wants people to be vaccinated that come through their home. So I, I, will, I will throw my lot in with world-renowned scientists and virologists and epidemiologists and, and experts throughout the entire world, the global medical community, before I throw my lot in Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his BS. So I'm not, you know, everybody do what they're going to do. But when you talk about shuffle, shuffling, Cupid shuffle, I will do all of that when it comes to doing my part and staying the hell out the hospital and staying the hell out the grave. Respectfully. <laughs> <laughs> I still love you, Faraji, but I did not. Because you said sheeple. I was like, okay, well, it was the sheeple part coming in. I, hate, so I have to say I that respectfully. Hey, I, I, I hate you, and that's certainly your choice. And I'm going to respect your choice just as much as you respect my choice. So, it, it, I you absolutely know. Do. I really, for me, you know, God willing, we'll be able to get through this and then, you know, learn learn the lessons from it. You know what I mean? I don't want to see anybody die. I certainly don't want to die. Uh, but I don't want to put anybody's lives at risk. That's why my children, I mask up and my family, we mask up everywhere we go. We, we keep our distance. We don't go out to a lot of places. So, you know, we're still doing our part to make sure that we're being responsible about taking care of other people's lives. But, you know, in this, as I was listening to Dr. Hortez, in this whole situation,